and welcome to episode 146 of the NFL Scotland podcast. You've just hopefully listened to us waffle on for ages about the draft. We've not got a clue. So tonight, we've got someone who does have a clue. My name is Cameron Hobbs. And my name is Paul Mitchell, and I'm not the one he's talking about. That, that's the unbelievable thing. <laughs> but we're, we're going to go from the implications for the team, Cameron, to the implications to the fantasy football world and who doesn't like playing fantasy football absolutely delighted to be joined now by editor-in-chief at FanDuel and host of the Late Round podcast and also the Living the Stream podcast welcome once again to the NFL Scotland podcast JG Zacharyson good evening sir hey how are you guys thanks for having me on thank you for coming back um now JJ, obviously you're here to guide us through the the complicated minefield that is fantasy implications following the scintillating 2021 NFL draft. On our podcast last night, we chewed the fat around what we thought went well, what didn't go well. We were looking at things very much from a progression point of moving the franchises forward. Tonight, we can look at fantasy value and actually a player can come into a situation that maybe doesn't necessarily help the franchise, but it could still have massive fantasy implications. Um, first and foremost, did you enjoy the draft yourself? I did. You know, from a from a fantasy standpoint, I feel like it could have gone better. Uh, you know, it was one of those situations where a lot of the prospects that I liked a lot ended up going into bad spots, bad landing spots. And a lot of these guys who I didn't necessarily care for, um, you know, they ended up finding some good spots. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still enjoyed it, had a lot of fun. Uh, it's always fun to, to finally see, you know, the reason I like the draft so much is we finally get to see how teams act rather than what teams are saying to the media. And we now sort of understand sort of the direction that these teams are going. And I think that's what, what the draft and why the draft is so interesting. So we'll start first of all with the quarterbacks. And before we get into the grit here, you know, you're just talking about what teams are doing. Who did you think the Niners were going to take at three, first of all? Yeah, so it's funny. I, I went through uh, a lot of different uh, sort of takes. You know, when they first made the trade and then they associated the Jimmy Garoppolo, they said that they were going to be be keeping him around. My initial reaction was actually Trey Lance. Like I talked about it on shows and I was like, oh, it's going to be Trey Lance because, uh, you know, he's more of the the raw prospect, if you will, that needs a, a year to sit and having Jimmy G there is sort of perfect for them. Uh, and he fits the offense well, although to be fair, any quarterback would probably fit the Kyle Shanahan offense. Um, and so I thought it was gonna be Trey Lance at first. And then I was like, yeah, you know what? I think Justin Fields is the QB two in this class. Maybe, maybe it'll be Justin Fields. Then we get all these rumors that it's Mac Jones. So by the end of it, I mean, I was with everyone else where I was like, I have no idea what direction they're going to go. And then once I started seeing the betting markets go in the direction that they went with Trey Lance, uh, on that final, you know, the final 24 hours or so, that's when I felt pretty confident, you know, draft night that it was going to be Trey Lance. Um, so I should have just gone with my initial gut instinct that it was going to be Lance because I probably could have made some money off of it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'll be honest. I saw the, the the movement there as well. I was still convinced it was going to be Mac Jones. Uh, you know, Mac Jones moved out, but he didn't really move out that far. And I think that his name had been mentioned so much that it was still a lot of uh, money moving around in his general direction. So uh, as a Niners fan, I was definitely pleased to see Trey Lance. It feels like there's more upside uh, looking at it from a, the point of view of who slots into that, um, uh, you know, into that scheme that Shanahan runs, and I think that if we get the Trey Lance of 2019, then good grief, you know, it really could yeah. elevate the Niners to another level. Uh, we'll come on to that uh, and whether there's any fantasy implications uh, around him. But before that, there's obviously the boys that went one and two. We know 
straight into the QB1 position. Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, you know, Lawrence we've been talking about for so long now. It was the worst kept secret. Um, you know, nobody was surprised when that came out. Uh, Zach Wilson, obviously, there's a lot of upside. He's really rocketed up. What's your thinkings on those two guys for 2021? Yeah, so, you know, I actually put Trevor Lawrence in my projections uh, before the draft because I knew that he was going to go first overall. Um, and I knew Zach Wilson was going to go second overall, so I was able to sort of plan ahead a little bit. But I was surprised that uh, Trevor Lawrence actually looked really good uh, in my projections, uh, you know, pre draft and obviously post draft too. Right now, he's like QB 14, QB 15 in my projections for, for this season. And I know that seems aggressive and high, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we always have to keep in mind with, with fantasy. Uh, at the quarterback position is the rushing component. Um, and so with, with Trevor Lawrence, he has that athleticism. Uh, Lawrence is a, a very mobile quarterback and, uh, you know, he's getting a lot of comps to Andrew Luck. And I actually think that that's a very fair comp. Uh, but but if you recall, when Andrew Luck was, was playing, uh, his fantasy output was largely driven. His ceiling was largely driven uh, by what he could do with his legs. Obviously, he was throwing a lot, doing well uh, in the pocket, but he would score five or six touchdowns in the season. He could rush for 300-plus yards pretty easily. Um, and so I, I think Trevor Lawrence brings that component while also being you know, probably the best traditional pocket passer in this class too. And when you bring that together with the, with the right weapons, uh, you can see that ceiling for Lawrence. My, my main hesitation right now with anything Jacksonville is Urban Meyer. Uh, I just, the things that he says and the actions that they took, you know, to go after Travis Etienne in the first round, I, I, I have nothing against Travis Etienne. I do have something against using a luxury pick on a running back in, a re, in, in rebuild mode. And then Urban Meyer coming out and saying, uh, Travis Etienne's our third down back and Carlos Hyde and James Robinson are going to be our one-two punch uh, on early downs. Uh, I have an issue with that from the standpoint of, well, for a lot of reasons, but from like a Trevor Lawrence standpoint, I have an issue with it that Urban Meyer just might not know what he's doing. And we haven't seen him with that experience at the NFL level. So maybe that hinders Trevor Lawrence a bit, but I do think that he is the overall QB one in this class. So JJ, if I'm sitting with Deshaun Watson in my, in my teams and I can keep him because we're allowed one keeper, obviously I'm panicking because he may not play do I see value in the likes of Trevor Lawrence or Zach Wilson, or should I go for a more uh, reputable, you know, quarterback, if you like, somebody who's proved they can get me points? Yeah, you know, obviously if Deshaun Watson was a lock to play, uh, then he would be a top six, top seven quarterback in fantasy because of what he can do with his legs. And, I, you know, I didn't mention Zach Wilson. I, I, I don't think that he has the same kind of year one ceiling that Trevor Lawrence does. He's not as mobile as Lawrence is. But if you look across the, the quarterback landscape, uh, you really do need guys who can run well. Uh, the only way that you're going to get, uh, you know, a top six, top five season, a true difference-making season from a non-mobile quarterback is if they have some sort of outlier season with their arm in terms of touchdown rate. So we saw that years ago when Matt Ryan had his MVP season. We saw that last year with Aaron Rodgers. He had the second highest touchdown rate, which is touchdowns divided by attempts, second highest of all time. That's a number that regresses year over year, regardless of how good that player is, because a lot of that's driven just by fortune, right? Like Green Bay threw the ball a lot close to the goal line. You know, if, if, Aaron Jones or if AJ Dillon doesn't get stuffed or, or Jamal Williams last year doesn't get stuffed at the one, then all of a sudden, you know, that touchdown that Aaron Rodgers threw from the one uh, switches to a, to a running back rush and a running back touchdown and things that that's just how natural regression works. Right. And so you're all, you always should be aiming for guys who can run the football. And the, the interesting piece of this uh, 
part of that with this class and as it pertains to this class is that we have a lot of good mobile quarterbacks. You know, Zach Wilson is probably fourth on that list in terms of mobility with Mac Jones being number five. And then obviously Trey Lance, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence are all there too. But Zach Wilson's number four on that list, but he's still fairly mobile. I mean, he can still run the ball well. I, I wouldn't be shocked if we see uh, Zach Wilson with maybe not to the same degree that Josh Allen has done in, in the NFL, but to that degree and be able to, to escape the pocket and score fantasy points with his legs. Um, so there's still some upside there, but you absolutely need that component uh, for your quarterback. And I, I don't think Zach Wilson's going to have it to the same degree, obviously, as like a Trey Lance and Justin Fields, but even to like Trevor Lawrence. Interesting as well that we know these two guys are going to come in and play a factor. And we talked on the podcast last night about the fact that the Jets went out and, and added players at the positions around Wilson as well. They very much focused on offense. And we'll we'll come on to the other positions in a minute. But you touched on there at the very top when we were t- talking about the Niners that Trey Lance quite possibly sits. Justin Fields, though, um, obviously the Bears came in and traded up. And I, I don't know that anyone was overly surprised by that either. The fact that Fields fell to where he fell meant that the Bears could come up and grab him. Do you think that they did that with him starting week one in mind? Or do you think they go with Dalton and they try and implement Fields into that? I mean, look, we see this every year where these teams have these veteran quarterbacks who are completely average um, and they claim that they're going to be, you know, the starters for their team. And then we see them week one. Like, it wouldn't shock me if Andy Dalton starts week one, just because that's the way that franchises generally work. I will say it might be a little bit different for Chicago and their situation because both Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace are on the hot seat and we might, we, we they might force the issue, which they should force the issue. You know, I, all research that I've done shows that, the way a quarterback performs early in his career is generally how good a quarterback is going to be for the rest of his career. So if a player is good, when you throw him on the field first, you know, and I say good, we it's within the context of what a typical rookie season generates. But uh, you know, if Justin Fields is good, he's going to be good when he steps on a football field. We see that at every single position, people try to overthink it a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, you know, can't hurt to let a guy sit and, and learn and, and all of that. But if you, uh, you know, are in a situation like Chicago's in where they absolutely need to show some sort of ceiling, they need to win now. Now they're gifted this Aaron Rodgers storyline too, where Aaron Rodgers might not be a Packer next year. The division gets a lot weaker all of a sudden. I mean, if Aaron Rodgers isn't a Packer, Chicago's probably the favorite to win that division or arguably. Um, and so uh, that to me, I think could force the issue with Justin Fields a little bit. Um, and it should. I, I think that Fields it was the second best quarterback in this class. Um, you know, he did it against really good competition. We have a a, a colleague of mine, Jim Sonis, over on Number Fire, uh, did a study on quarterbacks, and he found that Justin Fields' competition this past year was the best competition that any quarterback has faced since the year 2000. So since the turn of the century, Justin Fields' schedule this past year was the absolute toughest. Um, and he came through with really good numbers still. He's a very good quarterback, obviously very mobile. He ran that 4-4-4-40 at his pro day. Um, so I think there's just tremendous upside and really not terrible weapons around him there in Chicago. It's interesting, JJ, because you know you mentioned his numbers. Another guy who had great numbers, he had two of his receivers go ahead of him in the draft, is Mike Jones. He's found himself in New England. Cam Newton, I thought, was very uncam like last year. If Mike Jones can get up to speed, do you see him potentially starting in week one? Yeah, I, I mean, it could happen. I, I think that New England's probably going to play it a little bit slow because they know that they're in a position where they can. Uh, you know, th- 
New England's probably going to be more competitive than people realize. I mean, don't, don't forget that last season, like half their defense opted out uh, during the pandemic season. So I think the, the defense is going to be better. They obviously added some weapons, whether you think those weapons are good or not uh, is another you know topic for discussion, but they did add weapons. They at least tried. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I could see a scenario where Mac Jones lights it up in, in training camp and in the preseason and they're forced to do something like that. Uh, but I do think the most likely outcome there is that Cam Newton starts, uh, you know, New England, whether they struggle offensively or they're just not competitive. We just see Mac Jones, uh, you know, take over halfway through the season and, and then become their starter. And that's the thing, too, with all of this is that generally speaking, we see these first round quarterbacks, especially high end first round picks. You know, I wouldn't necessarily put Mac Jones even in that bucket, but we see these quarterbacks generally and historically take the field a lot earlier than we expect every single year it happens. Um, and so I wouldn't even be surprised if at some point we see, you know, I agree with you guys that Trey Lance is, is in a position where he can just sit back and not play, but I would not be surprised if at some point this season, you know, they they need to force Trey Lance onto the field because the offense is average, you know, nothing but, but better than average. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're forced to put Trey Lance out there to get that spark. And that, that seems to happen all the time because it's just very easy to finger point uh, and, and, and look at the quarterback and say, this is your fault. Yeah. I mean, we had some of that in New England last year. Is Cam Newton done from a fantasy perspective? Is, is he, is he now somebody to stay away from or does he have the ability because he used to be able to run? Does he have a sort of bounce back ability? Is he attractive prospect for people in, in fantasy this coming year? I don't think he's a bad like QB two uh, or a guy that you can target in, in super flex formats only because of the rushing component. I mean, last season he got by on that rushing component, new England, uh, you know, through like 15 or 16 games last year, hadn't even hit double digit touchdown passes. Um, you know, they, they just were, were running the football close to the goal line and cam was a big reason for that. Um, and so, you know, and he was still posting decent fantasy output despite nothing around him. Uh, despite the fact that he wasn't throwing for much, it was just all, all that rushing component. And, you know, if you want to tie yourself to some narrative with Cam to feel a little bit optimistic, you could say Cam Newton didn't perform very well after he got coronavirus. And, and really, there is a line right there where he got COVID. And after having COVID, he was not the same Cam Newton that we saw from weeks like one through three. So if you want to use that as a narrative, and, and that's sort of what you have to do when you're talking late round picks is sort of build this narrative, see where that ceiling could sit. And with Cam, maybe that ceiling is the fact that uh, he'll play better now that he's fully, fully recovered from COVID. He has better weapons, and we know that the rushing component is still there. Now, a big difference this year, and I guess this plays into the fantasy narrative as well, is we've got the Game 17, which is a new dynamic to add to the whole thing. If we look across the other positions, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, whatever, you know, they are all parts of the squad that they will rotate, and therefore they're all going to feature across all 17. Let's take the... the Brady's and the Rogers and that out of this conversation because they're not going to miss any single week because they're going for the postseason. Do you think those sort of mid-level teams that are perhaps on the bubble, perhaps just outside that uh, postseason window, do you think we're going to see more quarterback rotation this year because of that extra game? Or do you just think that's an, another number and they don't really care about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably not significant enough to change much. You know, I've gotten that question regarding uh, running backs and wide receivers too from a projection standpoint. Because let, let me tell you, I mean, I built out my projections and it's a pain in the butt compared to, to previous seasons 
to factor in and figure out how teams are going to utilize, especially the running back position. Like, do they, do they sit their running backs a little bit more than they typically do because of that extra, extra game and wanting to save these guys? Or do they continue to give them this crazy high running back rush share, like a Derrick Henry, does he continue to be fed the way he's been fed historically? How does that all work? Um, and so I think that's more of the discussion with the 17th game as opposed to, you know, quarterback changes or even wide receiver changes. I don't think wide receivers will see drastically different target shares or anything because their bodies aren't bit getting beat up like we see with running backs. Final, final question on the quarterbacks. Who, in your opinion, do people miss out on? as a quarterback who, who's a potential sleeper that people tend to think now nah, they're not going to do much for me but might surprise us yeah you know i i would say if you look at the so entering last season one of the the things that uh i tried to point out as much as possible was it was the first year since i started analyzing fantasy football where the quarterback market from an average draft position standpoint seemed very very efficient and what i mean by that is finally the market was correctly looking at these uh, cheat code rushing quarterbacks and ranking them and drafting them in that manner, right? So if you looked last season at the top eight or so, there's a very clear tier and a clear drop-off between those guys uh, and the rest of the position. You could maybe throw a dart at Cam Newton, you know, Ryan Tannehill was being drafted late and they were fine. Um, but there was a, just this very clear cluster. And as someone who literally wrote an ebook on drafting quarterbacks late back in 2012 and has uh, built my brand around drafting quarterbacks late. It was the first year where I was like, guys, guys, hold on. We can get middle round quarterbacks. It's going to be okay. And I feel similarly to that this year until we see uh, <clears throat> a true movement of mobile quarterbacks entering the league, which we just did, but they're not obviously from a, you know, a year one standpoint going to necessarily be uh, totally usable. Once we get 10 or 12 guys who, who have that QB1, QB2 ceiling, then we can go back to drafting our quarterbacks really, really late because we know we can wait and wait and wait and wait to get one of those guys, whether that's Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, any of those guys, uh, you know, one of them is going to hit, one or two of them is going to hit. And then in years later, you know, whether it's next year, year after that, we're going to get more and more quarterbacks who are able to give us that kind of ceiling. But right now, this season, we have this really, really small window where I'm going to be way more okay in drafting middle round quarterbacks, preferably someone at the end of that like true high-end QB1 has the rushing ability tier. And right now, that looks like Russell Wilson. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are sort of uh, not into, into Wilson given how he finished last year. Um, but all things considered, uh, you know, from, from a projection standpoint and what he's done over the last handful of seasons – he still has that top three quarterback upside and, and he's the one who's being drafted typically in the last part of that tier. If you want to go really late, I really wish that we knew Joe Burrow's status right now because he's another guy who obviously has the weapons around him um, and, and he has mobile ability too. I mean, he's not unlike a, you know, the guys that I was talking about earlier, like a Trevor Lawrence, where he's going to be able to, to rush for some, some fantasy points as well. And then if you want to look like right after that, that high end tier, uh, the Russell Wilson tier, if you will, I do think that Justin Herbert is still very, very intriguing, and you're still going to get him at a pretty reasonable price. I mean, he has the weapons around him, new regime there as well, um, and so he could have a crazy outlier touchdown rate season, but I also think that Herbert didn't show off his athleticism as much as he could have last season. I mean, he could realistically have 
the Josh Allen type impact that we've seen from Allen. Um, and if that hits, then all of a sudden it's really easy to see him be a top three quarterback. And he's got at least half an offensive line this season as well. Which yeah, is exactly. A step yeah. forward. <laughs> Speaking about offensive line, and we're going to move in. Actually, before we move into this, I need to ask, because you touched on the Aaron Rodgers thing. Where does Aaron Rodgers play next year for you? I hope it's Denver. Uh, I think I think it'd be amazing. I mean, for all my my Cortland Sutton shares out there, I hope it's I, I hope it's Denver. Um, I, I think Denver, if if he is traded, I think Denver's up there, and I think I think uh, Vegas is up there. Uh, two teams that would be targeting him. And and look, if you if you look at you know Devonte Adams sends this tweet about like uh, you know not, not knowing what you have until it's lost, basically, uh, and Aaron Rodgers liking that tweet tweet you have AJ Hawk on the Pat McAfee show saying that there's a zero percent chance that Aaron Rodgers is going to play in Green Bay next year he's tight with Aaron Rodgers I mean they're buddies right and so I I really and Aaron Rodgers himself is a is I love Aaron Rodgers I think he's a great personality and has uh, has a great outlook but he's also incredibly stubborn and we know that he's an arrogant guy so it would not be shocking to see him you know just say you know what I'm going to retire this year I'm not going to play because that's how much I don't want to play for Green Bay right now so I think it's more likely we see this happen than not uh, I would put Denver as my number one and probably the Raiders as my number two yeah it's interesting to see and I tell you what it's going to be all QBs going to the west what are two divisions they'll yeah. be absolutely unreal um so we'll move on right and, and we'll move into the wide receivers because the tie-in there is about the Cincinnati Bengals um we've got a bunch of great writers for NFL Scotland one of them put an article today to review the AFC North put out a comment saying that he felt the Bengals should have gone offensive line he's had a bunch of replies to that with people saying no 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 wide receiver was a much bigger need for the Bengals than offensive line from your point of view do you protect burrows or do you give him a weapon what's the most important thing if you're the Bengals? yeah so i think this is like a there's a couple layers to this so if i'm an nfl team i am doing what i can with my with my high-end picks my first and maybe second third round picks at least my first round picks i'm doing what i can to enhance the pass and stop the pass so what that means is i'm drafting offensive line quarterback wide receiver uh edge and cornerback right and so we see that now in, in today's NFL, we see those positions being heavily uh, regarded and, and them being drafted often in the first round. So when it comes to Cincinnati, at least they were addressing no matter direction they went, whether they went Sewell or if they went Jamar Chase, which they did, they were at least doing that, right? They were enhancing the path. It wasn't like they were saying, oh, is it going to be this offensive lineman or Najee Harris, which I would have a take for. Uh, instead, it was at least two positions that that matter uh, from, from a football standpoint. So now you now I think you take a step back and you look at this draft in particular, and I think you can make the argument pretty easily that the offensive line was a lot deeper in this draft class than the wide receiver position was. I know that a lot of people like the wide receiver position in this class. The problem was this class was filled with a lot of slot guys, uh, and that's not what Cincinnati needs. They have Tyler Boyd there, who's one of the better slot guys in the league, um, and you also don't pay up for slot guys. I mean, it's just not smart to do it's a fairly replaceable position which is honestly why i think juju smith schuster didn't get a great deal in free agency is because he's basically a slot receiver now um and so jamar chase being one of the few alphas if not the only true alpha in this class you know there's a scarcity component to that so to me it sort of made sense for what they did um you know i i think that that you could have gone either direction i don't think there's a wrong choice there and i'll be honest with you you know when i plug in i have a, a model that predicts the first three years of output uh, for wide receivers and running backs in fantasy. And Jamar Chase right now 
uh, is a 99th percentile prospect in that model. Uh, the only wide receivers with a 99th percentile score uh, are Amari Cooper, Sammy Watkins, Mike Evans, Julio Jones, Demarius Thomas, and Calvin Johnson. So I think Cincinnati got a pretty good wide receiver in Jamar Chase. That connection with Burroughs as well is something special. We were yeah. Paul and I were lucky enough to actually make it to see LSU in 2018. So we saw Burroughs to oh, nice. Chase take place. Um, you know, at Death Valley, what an experience that was. Um, at least they've gone and got a guy who's got the connection already. So that doesn't even need to be worked on. How significant do you think that is to his production value? I mean, I think it's probably something. It'll at least allow him that that comfortability. And I mean, but the bottom line is that Jamar Chase was probably going to ball out no matter where he went. Uh, you know, he's, he's that good of a wide receiver prospect. But I think it definitely gives a nice bump to Burrow uh, from a fantasy standpoint as well because you look across that. I mean, they have three very, very good wide receivers. T. Higgins is... is was amazing on the on the perimeter and on the boundary this past season. Uh, you know, Tyler Boyd, like I said, one of the better slot receivers in the league. And now you have Jamar Chase, who you can throw all over the field. So um, I, I'm I'm in love with those three wide receivers. You know, Tyler Boyd has a special place in my heart because I went to Pitt and he's a Pitt guy. Uh, but uh, those are three really really good wide receivers. So the next big question regarding wide receivers is: Did Miami take the right one from Alabama? And do we care what, you know, the, the situation? Who's Who's got themselves in the better situation, Jalen Waddle or Devontae Smith? Smith, you know, was a real big upside, but, you know, Waddle's, you know, went ahead of him by four places. Mm-hmm. Who should I be looking at in my fantasy draft out of those two? Yeah, you know, it's really tough. I, I don't think either landing spot was necessarily ideal. It's probably average to below average for both guy. Um, you know, the the... The way that I prospect these guys is through analytics and through numbers. Um, And I know that sounds crazy to some people. It's not like I don't watch them, obviously. I know it sounds crazy, but what I'm doing is I'm finding trends based on history. And I'm saying these guys match these trends and therefore they're going to be good or they're not going to be good in fantasy football at the next level. And I live in a gray area. I think of it all from a probability standpoint, not from a he's a bust. He's not a bust. He's a bust. He's not a bust. Um, Jalen Waddell has a very incomplete profile. And so when you plug him into spreadsheets and you look at him in a model, he's not going to look very good. But there's at least context that you uh, can provide Jalen Waddle's profile to see why he produced the way he produced. Year one as a freshman, uh, he outproduced Devontae Smith as a freshman. And De- Devontae Smith was a sophomore. He also outproduced Henry Ruggs, who was a first-round pick. The only Alabama receiver when Jalen Waddle was a freshman that did better than Waddle was Jerry Judy. And then year two for Waddle, uh, he plays with with Ruggs, Judy, and Devontae Smith. But all three of those guys, keep in mind, had a, a year in seniority over Jalen Waddle, and Waddle's snaps dropped pretty dramatically from year one to year two. And I think a lot of that had to do with the seniority aspect. So his production wasn't great in year two. Maybe that was bec- that was the reason. And then year three, through four games, Jalen Waddle had better production and more receiving yards than Devontae Smith last year. Uh, through those four games. And Devontae Smith obviously goes to have goes on to have one of the most historic college wide receiver seasons of all time and wins the Heisman. So you're in this position where, you know, film scouts love Jalen Waddle, like absolutely love Jalen Waddle. And that is part of my evaluation. But I'll tell you that in my model, I put draft capital in, in it because that inherently sort of embeds the film analysis aspect. Because if a team team is obviously going to be looking heavily at these guys with their eyes. Uh, and so if a team spends a sixth overall pick on Jalen Waddle, 
you know, that, that tells me that Jalen Waddle is probably pretty good at football. And if you look at, at history, um, you know, top 10 picks, there's been some busts. I mean, unfortunately, one of the, the closer comps analytically to a Jalen Waddle is like Darius Hayward Bay. And hopefully, you know, we don't see that outcome. Um, but top 10 picks are going to, uh, you know, not bust at as high of a rate as early second round picks. Um, and so uh, he has that going for him at least. But with Devontae Smith, from a production standpoint, it's just objectively, you don't have those question marks. It's just objectively not as close, right? So one of the things that I look at, one of the most predictive uh, production metrics at wide receiver is yards per team pass attempt. And I look at the best season that a player has within that statistic. Uh, Devontae Smith had one that was well above four yards per team pass attempt this past year. If you look at since 2006, all the first round wide receivers with a rate of four or higher, there's been two of them before Devontae Smith. Des Bryant and Demarius Thomas. So Devonte Smith, you know, BMI aside and the fact that he's leaner uh, and the fact that he's not an early declare either, that's kind of a, a red flag as well. You really want your first round picks uh, to, to declare early and leave school after three years rather than four, because that, that signals talent. It tells us that this player is leaving for a reason. He's leaving because he's likely going to be a first or second round pick. And Devonte Smith didn't leave this past year. So that is a red flag. But when I'm comparing Devontae Smith to Jalen Waddle, four spots isn't going to do it do enough for me. Um, I'm still putting Devontae Smith over Waddle only because there's just so much more uncertainty with Waddle and his profile than Devontae Smith. What about the quarterback situation that the two of them have? Obviously, we've got the connection there at Miami. Waddle and two have obviously played together to a point Smith and Hurts have as well. So, you know, there's, there's connections there. Um, which has got the better connection to link up to? Yeah, you know, it's tough. I think that that uh, the safer uh, option is with Waddle because I think Tua is going to be the quarterback for Miami for a longer period of time. And so, uh, you know, I think it's a, a safer bet to say that Waddle has that connection. But at the same time, uh, Devontae Smith is walking into a situation where he could be the wide receiver one right away. Uh, Jalen Waddle still has to compete with Devontae Parker and Will Fuller. Uh, and that could allow Devontae Smith to have a better ceiling. When it comes to teammate competition, the way I generally view this, and I've been building projections for a pretty long time, is that you know it's not so much that it hinders a player's floor, it hinders a player's ceiling. Um, and so if you look back at like DeAndre Hopkins when he would play for when he was playing for Houston, he would always have those monster, monster years when he had no competition. He would always crush it when Will Fuller was out of the picture, right? And so he was always going to have a baseline of like a 25% target share because he's DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, but when that competition's gone, that's when we can really see a high ceiling. And so that's why I think in the short term, Devontae Smith has that more than Jalen Waddle does. And then the... Yeah, because... Sorry, Cam. Yeah, because Eagles lost to Sean Jackson. Unction Jeffries moved on as well. So there's certainly potential there. What what I find interesting, where, where, where will we find value in the wide receivers? I mean, Baltimore took a wide receiver and the running joke on the NFL Scotland podcast is they never use them anyway. So what's the point? It's just blocking um, and running routes, right? It's just blocking <laughs> and running routes. So, so that, that's that's one of our running jokes because Gordon, who's part of our team, is, is a big Ravens fan. Where am I going to find value in wide receiver, you know, is, is it an Nico Collins, you know, going to the Texans, he looks great on paper, but he's going to somewhere where, I mean, it could be Tyrod Taylor, but he could be featuring early. You know, how, how do we, your best work out, you know, you might, are you better being number one on a bad team or number two on a good team? What am I looking for? 
Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to, to like, if you look at rookie drafts right now, for instance, from a dynasty standpoint, there's a very, very, very clear drop off after like Rondell Moore and like Terrace Marshall, Rashad Bateman, whoever you have in that tier, there's a very, very clear drop off. I, I still think there's going to be a lot of value to extract with Terrace Marshall though. Um, and, and I say that because it's very rare or when you look at this class, we didn't have a lot of true alpha wide receivers from a size standpoint. Terrace Marshall's 6'3", 205 pounds. And then you look at his profile analytically, he hits thresholds. He doesn't have an amazing production profile, but he does hit thresholds. He's very, very athletic, which athleticism doesn't matter that much at wide receiver because most of these guys are athletic. So it's kind of a moot point. Um, so, but he is athletic for what it's worth, but his production doesn't look very good on paper. And then you say why, and similar to the Jalen Waddle path that I took you down, you know, Terrace Marshall sophomore year, he was part of that Joe Burrow LSU team and he played behind Justin Jefferson and Jamar chase. What do you expect? <laughs> Terrace, like Terrace Marshall, no matter where Terrace Marshall was drafted, he was going to have easier wide receiver competition on his own team than what he had during his sophomore year at LSU. Right. <laughs> and the crazy thing with Marshall, the, the, the crazy thing with Marshall is that his sophomore season through the first four games, he got hurt his fourth game. He hurt his foot. And that's part of the reason why the medical concerns started to, to surface over the, the week before the draft. He hurt his foot against Vanderbilt, which was their fourth game through that game. And he had only played three and a half games compared to Justin Jefferson who played four. Jamar Chase had only played three. He had one fewer reception than Justin Jefferson and one more touchdown. So he's playing in the same system with the same competition or, or with this, with this elite competition and he's keeping pace with them. And then he gets hurt and it sort of derails the rest of the season. And then last season, um, you know, if you look at season long numbers, it doesn't look great. You know, whenever you give it context and you look at his market share numbers and how he performed within the context of his team, but he only played 70% of LSU's games because he opted out. It wasn't because of an injury. It was because he wanted to be like LSU's not doing well. There's a pandemic going on. If I'm Terrace Marshall, I'm opting out as well to go to the NFL draft. And so, uh, but, but if you look at his numbers during the seven games that he played, he had really good numbers. Uh, it was a strong, really, really strong touchdown share, uh, had a high percentage of his team's yards and receptions. Um, and those are all the things that I look for, um, you know, when scouting these guys and when looking at them analytically. So, you know, I, I don't think we're going to find many late round wide receivers. The other thing too, is the guy who went in the, on, on day three, who I liked the most was Tylen Wallace and he went to Baltimore, right? So he just all of a sudden matters a lot less in fantasy too. So I, I don't, I, I don't know if there's going to be this like very clear cut, obvious day three wide receiver. I mean, you can throw some darts at like a Cornell Powell because he landed in Kansas city. Um, and you know, obviously you're tying him to Patrick Mahomes. I'm more interested in where I can find that value with even day two guys um, and I think that if you look at where Terrace Marshall went, he's now with Joe Brady again, uh, you know, his LSU passing game coordinator. Um, and when you have that kind of connection where a coach clearly is vouching for you, um, that's, that signals something. And, and when you look at his whole profile across the board, I think Terrace Marshall has a chance to be elite. And I would not be shocked if we have two LSU wide receivers in three years, we look back and we say two LSU wide receivers were the two best wide receivers in this class. 
That's fascinating. Let's stay with receivers, but let's look at the... Because I think it might be a fairly brief conversation. <laughs> let's, let's look at the tight end draft class, because Cal Pitts obviously was the first receiver taken off the board. Um, how far up the fantasy rankings does Kyle Pitts immediately lodge himself? We're not talking he's above Kelsey and Kittle here, surely. Um, he's got to be sitting in behind, or do you think he's actually in the conversation in that top tier one level tight end? Yeah, I don't think he can be there yet. I mean, I think you make the argument from a dynasty standpoint, but from a redraft standpoint, um, you know, year one, I would not put him up there. But I will say, you know, a lot of people, I've already seen it, you know, tight ends don't perform well during their rookie seasons. You know, it's there's because there's a, a very big transition that tight ends make from college to pros because tight ends are asked to do more on a football field than arguably any other player. They have to be able to block well, understand both run and pass assignments. Um, and then they also have to be good route runners and, and get targeted, right? The difference with Kyle Pitts, though, and and historical you know rookie tight ends is that Atlanta didn't draft Kyle Pitts for him to stay in line and block for Mike Davis. Like that's not that's just not what Atlanta is is thinking when they take him fourth overall. He's a he's a freakish tight end, six six. Uh, he can line up out wide. He's already going to be the number three option in that Atlanta offense. Maybe he's the number two if Atlanta decides to trade Julio Jones. Um, and so I made the projection for Kyle Pitts and I plugged him in. He came out in projections as a rookie tight end, as tight end six, um, which is, you know, it might not sound as high as it could be because this is Kyle Pitts, but like from a rookie tight end standpoint, for him to already be the tight end six in fantasy from a projection standpoint, because remember, projection is the median. We're not talking about the high end outcome here. So there's room for growth there as well. Atlanta, given the fact they have such a bad defense right now, they're likely going to have a high pass to rush ratio, lots of passing volume in that offense. I, I think Kyle, I mean, I, I think that's what Atlanta looked at. And they said, you know what, if we're going to compete, only way we're going to win is if we just have an amazing offense and no one can stop. Like that's, that's just what they said. That's what they did. Um, and so uh, I, I love Kyle Pitts, both like people are going to be scared off because he's a rookie tight end. And I know his average draft position is just going to rise and rise and rise but I'm going to continue to buy because I think that's really you know, Kyle Pitts has that crazy, crazy ceiling. The simple, not a sorry, I was just going to say it's the simple we'll score more points than them, <laughs> which I'm a massive fan of from a viewing Same. point of view, bring it on. It. I wish everyone yes. played like that. <laughs> yes. Atlanta not having a defense is absolutely fine by me. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. JJ, I hate the tight end position in fantasy me too. because there's just so few that are good and you're trying to hit on people. Is it a position that you would recommend people just chop and change, pick up and drop on matchup? Is that the best way to go rather than sweat it and try and get one of the elite guys early? Yeah, I mean, I think you either go after the elite guy early or you wait and wait and wait and you stream or you find. So, so the way that you can spot breakout tight ends is usually if you want one single thing to look for, athleticism, period. That's it. If they, if they have opportunity with that athleticism, that's perfect. We saw that last year with Logan Thomas. We've seen that with Darren Waller. You know, back in the day, we saw it with Tyler Reifert, with, with Travis Kelsey when he broke out, with George Kittle. Um, and so I did a study by looking at, I, I charted average draft position by fantasy points scored over the last decade. So on the X axis, you have average draft position on the Y axis, you have fantasy points scored and you create a trend line, which is essentially expectation at a certain average draft position. So, you know, a tight end drafted 150th overall would have been expected to score hundred fantasy points. That's just an example, um, based on that trend line. So I then looked at players tight ends who outscored 
their ADP expectation by 70 or more points. And uh, we're dra- and, and I utilized that sample uh, to look at breakout tight ends. And I said to myself, what do these breakout tight ends have in common? How are they exceeding expectation by this much while being drafted you know, in the middle to late rounds? And one of the things that I found was that they were all athletic. I mean, the, the average height adjusted speed score, which is a fancy way of saying uh, 40 time adjusted for height and weight, uh, the, the average score by these breakout tight ends was in the 86th percentile. So if you find a tight end who's big and who's fast and has opportunity, that's your late round tight end target. Never draft middle round tight ends. They generally never pan out. Um, you know, there might be an exception to that rule this year with Kyle Pitts because he's unlike anything we've ever seen before. Um, but generally avoid middle round tight ends. You're either going early or late. Um, and you know what? You know, I, I'm, I'm buying into early round tight ends more and more because the opportunity cost and getting them is becoming less and less because the wide receiver position appears very deep. The running back position appears fairly deep, or at least deeper than what we've seen in years past, which means that if you're spending up on Travis Kelsey and George Kittle in the first two rounds, you know, your loss, which is not getting a running back or wide receiver there isn't as significant as it used to be. So I'm cool with getting those guys uh, or, or I'm cool with just waiting and trying to find, you know, next year's Logan Thomas. Now, before we move on to running back, is there any other tight end that was drafted this year that's even worth looking at? Or are you talking you got to be in a 20-team-plus redraft league to be even thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. From a, from a redraft standpoint, I don't think there's going to be a tight end that's really going to do anything significant. From a dynasty standpoint, you know, Pat Fryermuth's going to be interesting with that with Eric Ebron likely gone next season. But he's, I mean, Fryermuth might see like 25 targets this year. People who people are are overly excited about Fryermuth's potential uh, in year one. Hunter Long's kind of interesting longer term too because uh, Mike Kosicki might not be a Dolphin after this year. Uh, it's a possibility. So. Uh, always look at the contract stuff for these guys if you're thinking long-term, but in the short term, not very excited about this this tight end class. So let's move on to the running backs then. Uh, and you touched on this earlier as well, that perhaps there was some disappointing things from your point of view from a fantasy. Uh, Najee Harris, obviously, behind one of the worst offensive lines in football. Not great from a running back point of view, is it? Yeah, with, with Najee, yeah. I mean... So, uh, you know, the Steelers could have, I mean, I think the Steelers, what they should have done is get a guy in free agency to have a safety net, have a baseline, get someone like Leonard Fournette or, or something like that. Um, or Damian Williams and, and have a baseline at the position. So you didn't feel forced to take a running back in the first round while your offensive line needs a complete makeover. Um, now to be fair, the offensive line likely can't be worse than it was last year. Um, and so you, they at least have that going for them. Um, but Najee Harris, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, he's going to get get blasted with work. I mean, he's going to see a ton of volume on the ground and through the air. Really underrated receiver. Everyone thinks that, you know, he's a 230-pound back, so he's got to just be a bruiser. But he, he's a top three receiver at the position in this class, if not the best receiver at the position in this class. So I'm not nervous about Najee from a fantasy standpoint because volume drives the game and he's going to be fed. I mean, he's going to see a massive market share in that backfield. Uh, am I worried about efficiency? Yes. Um, but I think I, you know, my projections initially had him at like RB 18. Uh, I think he's going to probably be a high end RB two in terms of ADP. And I think that's totally reasonable and logical. Now, one of the things that I've moaned about already on the NFL Scotland podcast, and this is a Europe America thing here. So Travis 
Etienne. Now, we would pronounce it with an E rather than an E. But, um, yeah. you know, Etienne is definitely the name that I heard a lot watching the college game and watching Clemson. Um, surprised to see him go to the Jags, though, with Robinson having such a great season last year. Didn't necessarily feel like a, a massive need in Jacksonville. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm I'm fairly anti-running back in the first round just because we know the position's pretty replaceable, and it's more of a luxury pick. You know, teams like Kansas City last year, taking Clyde Edwards-Alaire, even if you didn't think it was the, the best running back pick uh, in terms of the player, you know, I like Jonathan Taylor more pre-draft than I like CEH. Uh, regardless of how you felt about the player, Kansas City was a team that had the luxury of making a choice like that. Jacksonville is not that team. Jacksonville needs completely rebuilt, um, and they're taking, uh, you know, a running back. It just doesn't make much sense. Am I surprised that it happened? I thought, and I talked about this a lot on my podcast, I thought they were going to go after a more traditional third down back like Kenneth Gainwell, uh, someone someone who could catch pa- pass out of the backfield, which would honestly really hurt James Robinson still. Um, but now they got a third down back, that's what Urban Meyer calls him, who also can be a workhorse. And I'm not buying the coach speak of Urban Meyer saying that James Robinson and Carlos Hyde are going to be a one-two punch with Travis Etienne being a third down back because it's not logical whatsoever. You don't spend a first round pick on a running back when over the last decade, the average attempts during their rookie season for a first round running back, and this includes injured running backs, has been 205. So it's just, it's very unlikely that Travis Etienne's not going to be the workhorse for Jacksonville. Big, big uh, ding for, for James Robinson. You know, he's, He's, it's 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 a good it's a good lesson um, that when you get a regime change like Jacksonville is seeing and getting uh, to not overstate what you think about players and what you know about players because in the end it's always a good idea to bet against undrafted free agents it's just that's just the truth and um, you know when a new regime comes into into and becomes uh, you know starts running this team or a team uh, you you can't make assumptions and I think that this is a great example of just not making those assumptions. You know, James Robinson played well last year. I think James Robinson's great. If I ran the Jags, there's no chance I would have taken Travis Etienne there. But uh, you just have to be open-minded about this stuff because football guys don't necessarily think the same way as fantasy football guys. Yeah, that's very true. But interesting what you say about the the language there, Cameron. I mean, Etienne or Etienne, depending on, on how you go, Jaguars or Jaguars is the other. So it's it's the perfect combination yeah. that we, we can now disagree with our transatlantic cousins on two pronunciations in the one play. So it's going to be great. <laughs> so who beyond those guys then are the ones that you're looking at? Trey Sermon, obviously, as a niner, I'm looking at him thinking like, do you know what? It's another weapon in the backfield. Uh, Jarek McKinnon's moved on. So let's take reinforcements. Uh, no harm to have them. But Javante Williams, Michael Carter feel like two guys who could come in and have a pretty big impact right away. Williams, um, obviously, at Denver is going to sit behind Melvin Gordon. Michael Carter, though, at the Jets feels like a big, strong back who could really do a lot of damage pretty early on. Yeah, so I mean, first off, I wouldn't be shocked if Melvin Gordon gets dealt, is cut, one of the above, uh, before the season starts or at that June that June cutoff. Um, he's at least a free agent next year, so we know that he's likely not going to be a Bronco next season, which is when Javante Williams can then become something. But even still, uh, one, one of the things that I've researched and found is that when uh, teams trade up uh, day one or day two for a running back, those running backs actually do see an increase in volume uh, versus their counterparts during their rookie season. And Denver traded up to get Javante Williams because they wanted to jump ahead of Miami, 
who was in the market for Javante Williams. So uh, they get Javante Williams. I think it's going to be a situation where it's a muddy backfield. It appears to be muddied, um, but people are going to give Melvin Gordon a little bit too much credit. I'm going to buy Javante Williams because you're probably going to be drafting him around his floor where, you know, if you can get him in the middle rounds, if you can get him in like the fifth or sixth round, wherever he ends up, you know, landing, uh, you know, you at least have that upside uh, not baked into that ADP where what if he just takes over that backfield and all of a sudden uh, in what could be a decent offense, you know, I'm not the biggest Drew Locke fan in the world or Teddy Bridgewater, but uh, they have a good line. They have good weapons. All of a sudden Javante Williams could be very, very usable. So I like Javante Williams a lot. Great size. Uh, he was part of the big three for me pre-draft uh, in my prospect model with Najee Harris and Travis Etienne. And then Trey Sermon, great landing spot, obviously, and he fits the system really well. So I'm 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 interested in Trey Sermon, another guy who, I, you know, this is a small running back class, similar to the wide receiver class. It was small, and Trey Sermon's one of the few guys in this class who who has the size to handle a big workload. Um, and then with Michael Carter, you know, I I have to like this landing spot a lot uh, because there's no one else in the Jets that we really should be worried about. Um, the the thing with Carter though, compared to the other guys, is you know, he weighed in at 201 pounds and then he goes and he runs like a four, five, five, uh, 40 at his pro day. And it sort of makes me think Devin Singletary a little bit, you know, this smaller back doesn't necessarily have his breakaway speed, but I do think Michael Carter has a little bit better agility and he's a, he's a great pass catcher. Devin Singletary didn't have the pass catching chops coming out of college, didn't have the same profile. So I think at the very least, you're looking at a situation where Michael Carter could be like, uh, the Jets chase Edmonds or something. And then all of a sudden, if he can build on that early down role, then you'll be able to see, you know, some value there. So I, I actually think that Michael Carter is going to be a good redraft pick this year too. Yeah. I, I always like looking at running backs because you, you, you're right. If you can get a running back to, or somebody on your bench, you are looking at the potential of them knocking off who's ahead of them. And I thought, you know, the Melvin Gordon stuff's absolutely right. Um, you mentioned Kenneth Gainwell out of Memphis that, that you liked him. Were you surprised he fell so far? Um, I don't know if I was surprised he fell uh, only because this running back class wasn't very good. And Kenneth Gainwell didn't play last year. And I, I think teams favored the guys who, uh, you know, ha they had that 2020 tape, whereas Gainwell stopped in 2019, uh, despite the fact that he, uh, you know, was playing on a team with Antonio Gibson and he outperformed Antonio Gibson. He was the running back there. Uh, but Gibson has, has the size advantage over, over Gainwell. And that, that to me is the biggest concern with Gainwell is that he just doesn't have a big profile. I mean, he's and, and whether, so, so statistically I've found that size matters. BMI matters at the running back position, whether it's because they're actually incapable of carrying a big workload. I, I have no idea. I just know that the end result is that bigger, bigger running backs uh, will see a bigger workload than smaller running backs will. I think there's probably a little bit of a bias from coaches because they don't throw these smaller running backs on the field to carry these big, massive workloads. Uh, so it's not so much that I think that Gainwell or Michael Carter wouldn't be able to be true workhorses. It's just that I don't trust their teams and coaches around the NFL to put those players in those good positions. Perfect. Now, there's one more position that's absolutely key for me when it comes to fantasy, and there was only one player taken in the whole draft. How much faith can you put in Evan McPherson, uh, the single kicker? Now, we know how valuable kickers are. Uh, anyone that's gone Justin Tucker in the eighth round and absolutely set carnage off in their fantasy draft knows that Justin Tucker could win you weeks, man, could win you most weeks. Um, 
someone like Evan McPherson, though, do you, what do you do with a rookie kicker? Do you take a risk on that, or do you just avoid it <laughs> like the plague and go with someone that you know is in a good position? I, I will stream the position each week, and if that means that I'm getting a rookie kicker who's in a good spot, I will play a rookie kicker in a good spot. You know, there's no there's no discrimination with me in, in, in how I view these rookie kickers. Hang on. If Justin Tucker falls to you, do you still stream Justin Tucker? I mean, if he's on my team, uh, it might be a little <laughs> bit different. But I usually, you know, honestly, I usually there's usually someone in my draft who ends up reaching a little bit for Tucker. Yeah, there always is one. There's always yeah. one. I sixth round is the earliest I've seen, and it just Man. I that I, I was just taking the piss. Like there was there was no more than that. Yeah. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Claims not to be, but that's the case. Um, okay, any if if you were to pick one player then out of this whole draft, you get to pick him. He's in your team for the season. Who are you taking? Um, I mean, Najee Harris would be the dude. If I could have any of them, regardless of ADP, I think Najee Harris is that guy. But, you know, I, I've done a, I've done a study also, the, the same breakout tight end study I was talking about earlier. I did one for running backs and wide receivers. And at the running back position, one of the things that was very obvious with breakout running backs is that they come from ambiguous backfields. So what I mean by ambiguous backfields is that their starter, they're usually the number two running back on their team, and their starter uh, is typically drafted it, on average. He was drafted at, at pick 60 overall. So he's usually drafted in like the fifth or sixth round. And so if you look at it from that perspective, I'm targeting these ambiguous backfields. I'm actually targeting Trey Sermon in redraft. I will target Javante Williams in redraft because you're getting them in a, in a spot where there's room for growth, where there's not locked in absolute starters ahead of them on their depth chart. Um, and their team spent day two capital on those players. So, um, you know, if I miss, I miss. It's a middle round pick. It's not the biggest deal in the world. Um, but that's really the direction that I try to go in with the running back position. Perfect. It's, it's interesting, Cameron. I've had a number of teams being in touch with me already. Uh, JJ might not know this. Begging me not to draft their players because my injury rate of my top four <laughs> picks last year was incredible. Apps, I, lo- I lost them all to injuries. So uh, there's been a number of teams highly concerned, uh, but I'm, I'm always prepared to take a Steelers running back if it's going to knock them out of contention. So <laughs> hey <hey-ho. laughs> We've got one last question, JJ, before we let you go. And sorry, we've yeah. had you for ages here. But we've noised up our resident Raven fan on this podcast. We've noised up our Packer fan. I've had some Niners chat. We've not touched on Paul's Saints. I've got to ask you this question. Where in the ranking, 1 through 32, and I'm assuming he's in there somewhere, does Jameis Winston sit in your quarterback ranking? As like a starting quarterback, non-fantasy, like a real starting quarterback. <laughs> let's, let's talk fantasy. Where, you know, where are you taking him in a fantasy round? Yeah. At what round are you thinking, I can't believe Jameis is still here? Look, I, I like Jameis more than other people like Jameis. I'll say that. Like, I think that if you were to take a poll of like 500 analysts, I would probably be above average within that poll uh, when, it, when it comes to my perception and, and feeling about Jameis. I mean... From a fantasy standpoint, you know, I don't think New Orleans is going to be very pass friendly and pass heavy, uh, you know, and they haven't been over the last couple of seasons. Um, I think he's more in that low end QB two range, probably in like the QB 22 ish, something around there, because we know the rushing components not there. And I'm really striving for that with my quarterback. That's fair. fair. Thanks, camera. I I mean, I say going from Breeze to Winston is like being moved from first class to economy. It's highly unacceptable. Well, on that note, JJ, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely fascinating content. Thank you for taking the time to share some of that uh, post-draft analysis. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me.
absolutely great to hear from JJ again. He joined us last year to talk about fantasy implications. Joined us again. The analysis, the depth. I mean, yes, fine. He does it for a living and we're all very jealous that he gets to do that. But really great content. If you're sitting wondering what to do, hopefully that's just made it a little bit easier for you. You know, Cameron, I'm not sure if we'll be able to tweet my notes, but I've got a pile of notes here that I've made as, as we went along there. Potential sleepers, what to look for, where to draft. That, that Honestly, that is fantasy gold for people that perhaps don't get into overly deep and just you know want a little bit more. I've been playing fantasy for ages and I learned so much from that. It was brilliant. Really pleased that JJ could join us. And it's one of those things we don't necessarily talk about fantasy a great amount. You know, we just like to chew the fat about American football and that really is what we're all about. But you know, and there's some great fantasy football podcasts out there. Go check out JJ's own podcast. You know, definitely give them a listen. There's some uh, some uh, some people that are great friends of the podcast who do some UK ones as well. They do good work. Um, but it's nice every now and then to just touch on that fantasy world and and get some insight. Uh, and you know, we're coming up for year two of that NFL Scotland podcast fantasy group. Um, uh, you and me lost in the semi-finals this year. Uh, I'm going to beat you in the final this year. Just saying that now. Well, if you can get past the semi-final, I mean, it's not—it's not your strongest. <laughs> it's it's not, not your strongest suit. It has to be said. I've, I've retained my general manager. I've got every oh. expectation that they can take me to the next level. So don't don't you worry. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> on that note, that's a full-time whistle for episode 146. Thank you for taking the time to listen. As ever, please share your thoughts on this and every episode on social media at. Scotland NFL on Twitter and search for NFL Scotland on Facebook yeah we've got a great website going at the moment NFL Scotland check that out check out some of the goodies that you can purchase with our brilliant logo as well two podcasts in a couple of days we've been working overtime we'll be back next week with more great stuff from NFL Scotland podcast from Cameron and from myself thanks for listening bye for now And for anyone that listens to the end of this podcast, uh, Paul, we, we're, we're not going to name names, but we've got a wee announcement, a new member of the team officially. This is going to be absolutely fantastic. The, the person themselves are delighted to join us. It's going to be great, Cameron. Yeah.